Um, I've mentioned before, most of you know, I actually went to this school to kindergarten. You know, Roman Catholics didn't do kindergarten. But my mom wanted me out of the house. She was willing to send me to a public institution for kindergarten. to Get Mike out of the house for half a day, one year earlier. So I did. I just grew up a couple blocks from here. I, I did go to kindergarten down the, down the hall there in what we use as the library and the nursery. Uh, great time. I was one of 11 kids and always loved being part of a big family. And the age span in our family, Joe the oldest, Angie the youngest, is 16 years. I'm right in the middle. Joe's eight years older than me. Angie's eight years younger. And you can imagine, even on families of smaller scale, you get a bunch of bodies in the house. And especially as you start aging and with that kind of a age span, kids are coming and going all the time. You know, you've got work schedules, you've got school schedules, you've got hobby, games, sports, whatever, all the time. And so one of the questions my mom would routinely ask any of us before we headed out the door for the day or whatever, the weekend or whatever was going on, she would ask us, will you be home for supper? Will you be home for supper? Now you can imagine this had a very practical side to it, didn't it? Because she's cooking. Now, cooking for six is different than for 13. You know, if everybody's home, 13, better know that ahead. If it's six, I don't need to go to those same lengths. So... She would ask routinely as we would head out the door, will you be home for supper? So it was a good thing. It was very practical. You know, there's a flip side of that too, though. With all the coming and going, mom knew that if there was a single time on any given day in which all the family would be together in one place at one time, it would likely be at the supper table. You know, going all kinds of different directions. But if there was a time on a given day that everyone would be together that the family would all be home and would be together. It was going to be at the supper table. So the question also bore that in mind. So not only how much food do I need to think about and prepare, but will the family all be together? Will we have that time when we're affirming again, each one of us is here. Sometimes it can't be helped that we're away, right? But, but is it important enough? We'll be able to carve out that time of day when all the family is together. We're sitting around the table We're telling each other, you're valuable, right? I'm part of this family. I'm showing up. I'm here. And the others there, you're valuable. We're here for you as well. And you sit around the table and you have this time of fellowship. You're sharing with each other what's gone on through the day. You know, it's a great, it's a strategic time. When Kathy and I were raising our girls, um, the meal times, it's not not just because you're eating, is it? It, It's the shared time around the meal table. So for us, uh, family meals were really big, not just supper, but breakfasts as well. So even when our girls were very little, Kathy would wake them up so that they would have breakfast with their dad every morning, Monday through Friday. We had breakfast together every morning. And that was important so that they saw dad before he left for the day. But also, we would eat together, and it was usually cold cereal or toast. It wasn't a, a production. But we'd study through the Bible together. So my girls growing up every morning, five mornings a week at least, we were reading through the Bible together. And it was, not, it was not hard to do. Just read the story and we would talk about it. And so every morning, our girls, we were sharing God's Word with the girls and we were simply talking about what the stories brought up. So as our girls grew, the breakfast table was the place they were hearing God's Word and they were interacting with both of their parents about what that looked like and how you walked that out. How important it was and how we applied it. That was normal. See, then at the supper table, it was a little bit more of the same. 
So it was routine for us, even when there was lots of activity in school, it was normal for us, the rare exception, when we weren't all together for supper. See, and again, it's because as a family, we were saying this time is important and we want to be home for supper. And we have lots of people at our supper table too because you can imagine the girls, especially when they were students at Washburn University, they would invite other students home. So our family table would expand and we would bring others into that dynamic. So it's a great healthy interchange between everyone there. You try and give all the girls time to say, this is what went on with my day, this is what is important, this is what I'm reading, or these are my challenges or whatever. All of that's good. But then after supper, after the meal, then we would read a book. We'd read great literature. So Tolkien and Lewis and McDonald's and tons of other authors, we would read together after our meal. So again, you're reading these stories that intrinsically bring up values and worldviews and you're reading them and you're talking about them so for us i tell you as parents for kathy and i it was times around the meal table that i would argue were strategically important for us for passing our value and our faith on to the girls so far it looks like it's stuck and they're doing the same now with their kids but really really strategic and valuable time let me read to you from a couple of online articles now, if you're aware, you know, studies are being done about just things like families having meals together. So here's information from a couple of these studies. This is called, Do Family Dinners Have Any Scientific Benefits? And this is from the Family Dinner Project, part of Project Zero. I confess I don't know what that is, but it's centered out of Harvard University. They say this, Over the past 15 years, researchers have confirmed what parents have known for a long time. Sharing a family meal is good for the spirit, the brain, and the health of all family members. Recent studies link regular family dinners with many behaviors that parents pray for. Lower rates of substance abuse, teen pregnancy, and depression, as well as higher grade point averages and self-esteem. Studies also indicate that dinner conversation is a more potent vocabulary booster than reading. And the stories told around the kitchen table help our children build resilience. The icing on the cake is that regular family meals also lower the rates of obesity and eating disorders in children and adolescents. What else can families do that takes only about an hour a day and packs such a punch? This is based summary statements about surveys being done on the way families interact, specifically around mealtime. This is from Cornell University, and they say this, your child may be 35% less likely to engage in disordered eating, 24% more likely to eat healthier foods, 12% less likely to be overweight, according to Hammonds and Fees. All three of these statistics are attached to one family ritual, shared meal times. They list three things about these. They say, one, set a goal to have regular family meals at least three times per week if possible. Most research notes some type of improvement in child outcomes when a family participated in at least three family meals together each week. The second thing, remember the benefits of consistent family mealtimes. As noted by Music and Meyer, the routine of family meals can generate feelings of closeness and comfort. Even when mealtimes feel hectic or disorganized, take comfort in the fact that the simple act of regular mealtimes may be providing your child with stability. Let me just pause to note, one of the things this article was talking about was uh, where's the chicken and where's the egg on this stuff? You know, if you're trying to isolate in a survey to see what is cause and effect, that's really hard to do. And they were pointing out 
part of this is what occurs at mealtime, but part of it is that mealtime is part of a larger ethos. And so do you say that it's simply that the family sat down to eat together produced these results, or do you say that families that tend to have a healthy ethos interaction also eat together? You see what I'm getting at? It's hard to parse one from the other. So this article was about that, which is which. Probably they are all knit together. It's probable that families that tend to be healthier are also the ones that tend to eat together. They reflect each other. The third thing they said was, don't forget quality of family meals is just as important as quantity. Meal times have been noted as one of the most common times children communicate with parents. So if possible, guard your meal times from outside distractions. Turn off the TV. Today we would say turn off the cell phones and ask questions to your children about their day, school, friends, goals, etc. Researchers note that family meals may provide a unique context for parents to connect with and share important information with their children. They conclude family dinners may be part and parcel of a broader package of practices, routines, and rituals that reflect parenting beliefs and priorities. Interventions aimed at increasing the frequency of family meals may be successful only if they change the family habits that tend to go along with eating as a family. So we would know it's not j- the, the meal is not magical, but it's part of this larger whole. What does my family life look like? So part of it is what's going on in the mealtime for sure. It's the sharing of a meal. It's the interchange between all of us. It's the fact that we're gathered together. Part of it is the meal specifically. But also it's the ways in which the family time around the supper table is part of that larger family ethos. Care is expressed. Values are shared. Values are transmitted. And it's the fact that the corporate meal is a reminder that we're all part of something bigger than any individual. The group is honoring the individuals in its midst and the individual is honoring the group, right? It's both. So I'm there for the rest of my family members and they're there for me. The simple fact that we're meeting together, that we've carved out that part of the day to sit down together and do nothing but interact around the meal communicates a lot. Now all of this, as you can imagine, is leading to a point. By the way, I hope your families, I hope you have great meal times. I hope you enjoy outstanding meals. And I hope you have great conversation around them. But we're really using this as a paradigm to talk about the family of God, the church of Jesus Christ, and the kind of interaction God means to occur in his family. And this issue of what the positive benefits are like for a family, a nuclear family, your family, my family, that's reflected around our meal times, that same kind of ethos and dynamic God lays out for his family, the church. And so we can use that as a healthy paradigm to say, does my participation in the church, in God's family, look like this? Are we as a church family doing the kinds of things that communicate this value to each other and that we're communicating the group's important and we're communicating that the individual's important and that we're here for each other and that we encourage each other? So that's the paradigm. Will you be home for supper as a way of saying, can we count on you? Are you going to be here? Are we going to be together? Are we sharing these times where we share ourselves with each other? That's what we're talking about. So the healthy dynamics that occur as families sit down to meals together should also be occurring in the family of God and not just at meals, not just at potluck Sunday. So 
This is week six of the series, The Church as Family, and today's title is Home for Supper. That has to do with the regular and intentional fellowship we share as members of God's family and this local expression of that family as we collectively meet Sunday mornings or midweek or men's groups or at ladies' groups or on and on. You know, uh, I tell people, I regularly teach through books of the Bible, and, and I think that was Paul's method. He talks about that in Acts 20. I, I haven't failed to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I've told you everything. You know, some of us have hobby horses. And so if I teach the Bible, I avoid, or I only get to them occasionally, my hobby horses. But I, I will confess, this is one of my hobby horses. And, and I hope it becomes one of yours as we work through this a little bit this morning. Um, the degree to which people in the family of God today minimize the importance of meeting together with the family of God is for me a key indicator of how lowly a view we have of God's exhortations to us and how little we value each other. So Jesus says the world will know your mind by the love you have for each other. If we aren't important enough to each other to carve out time to get to home for supper, to gather with the church family, what are we really saying about the value we place or don't place on each other? And also, what are we saying about the injunctions God has made very clear in His Word? Are we dissing our Father and our brothers and sisters in Christ by the attitude we have simply related to meeting together regularly? So with that, if you have your Bibles or your study sheet uh, starting in Hebrews 10 to cover this point specifically, let me read this and we'll make some, some conclusions based on it. Hebrews 10, uh, verses 19 through 25, the writer says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is His flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, you know, as soon as you see that word, first word in the text, therefore, this is a summary passage. This is a summary passage. It's looking back on all the things the writer has already communicated. And so if you go back through the earlier chapters of Hebrews, you know there's two key issues going on here. Jews are being persecuted. Jewish believers are being persecuted. And the writer of this letter wants to tell them, hold on to your faith. Hang in there. That's why you get to chapter 11 and all the examples of faith. The Hall of Fame, you know, the guys who believed and stuck it out. So he's calling him to stick it out. Hold on to your faith. You're going to be tempted to reject the faith. You're going to be t tempted to quit the race of life. Chapter 12. Early, don't do it. But the reason they need to stick it out is because Jesus is the fulfillment. He's better than everything they knew before. So if you read through Hebrews, you see he's simply going point by point to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the types in the Old Testament. The types are the pictures. Jesus is the antitype. They're the shadows. He's the reality. So God used to speak through prophets, but now he spoke through his son. 
God sent angels before and Jesus is better than the angels. And you used to have a Sabbath rest and now you have a rest 24-7, 365. And you used to have the offering of bulls and goats, but they could never cleanse your conscience. But Jesus' sacrifice will cleanse your conscience from sin. And we used to offer those animal bodies. Jesus offered His own body. We used to have the Aaronic priesthood. Now Jesus has a new Melchizedekian priesthood. Unique. We had the old covenant. Now we've got the new covenant. You see, the whole thing is to show them Jesus is better than everything you had. You have nothing left to go back to. So hold on to Christ. So we've got to frame what what chapter 10 says in the context. This is application based on the person and work of Jesus Christ. If we don't get that, we're not getting the impetus the writer means us to have. So based on who Jesus is, based on what He did, He says in this passage, do three things. The first thing at verse 21 is, draw near to God. So you remember, these are Jewish believers. And all their life through the law, they've had a mentality that says, God is holy and I'm not. And we know that architecturally even, right? Holy of holies, that's where God is. I can't go there. Then the holy place next, I can't go there either. Then the place where the priests are, I can't go there either. Separation after separation after separation because God is holy and I'm not. But under Jesus, this has already been spelled out, there's now been a sacrifice that absolutely justifies me before a holy God. And my sins are cleansed and my conscience is clear now. So now when I confess my sins, my conscience actually quits accusing me. So the first thing he says here based on the personal work of Jesus is draw near to God. There's nothing to hold you out anymore. God is now your Father. Come near. Chapter 4, he talked about prayer. Come boldly before the throne of grace when you need help. There's nothing to hold you back. So that's the first thing, draw near. The second thing at verse 23 is hold fast the truth of Christ or he says our confession of faith. Hold fast. He's already talked about people who made a profession of faith who don't do so anymore. Think of chapter 6. In fact, Hebrews is filled with warning passages. These are passages that theologians today still debate. Is he talking about believers or unbelievers? How does this work out? But it's filled with warning passages. Hold on, he says. Jesus is your only hope. Hold on, no matter what happens, no matter somebody else's theology or persecution, whatever that looks like. Hold on to your faith in Christ. Don't let go. That's key. And then the last is this one. Stimulate each other to love and good deeds. That seems like a little bit of a monkey wrench in this thing to me. Draw near to God. That sounds holy. Sounds spiritual. Hold fast the confession of faith. That's theology. That's orthodoxy. That sounds too. But then you got this weird third one. Stimulate each other to love and good deeds. How are you going to stimulate each other to love and good deeds, by the way? I'll bet it has something to do with getting together with each other, wouldn't you? I bet that's why verse 25 says... Don't forsake your assembling together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So just let this sink in for just a minute. And if you feel this heavy weight of conviction, that's great. Right? Um, this, this admonition is based on the person and work of Christ. We're to encourage each other to love and good deeds, and it happens in the setting in which we've gathered together. Don't quit meeting with the other believers. So when we think of the person work of Christ, we might think of high theology, and we might think of orthodoxy through the ages, and one thing and another. 
Guys, God puts this on the same level as those things. Drawing near to God in prayer. Holding fast to orthodoxy. He says get together and encourage each other to love and good deeds. It's on the same level. This is based on who Jesus is. This is based on what He's done. And I think it's because of this. God knows that we tend to simply sort of default back to old ways. And that's why this thing keeps saying, hold on, hold on, hold on. The race is a marathon. Don't give up early. You, you, you talk about faith. My, my soul takes no pleasure in the one who withdraws. Those who please God have faith to the saving, this book says, of their souls. That's the encouragement here. Well, guys, this means we need encouragement from each other to stay in the race of life, to stay in the faith. We need the encouragement. Just like we need to draw near to God personally in prayer, we need the encouragement brothers and sisters in Christ give us to love and good deeds, to continue to confess the faith. We need it. It, This wouldn't be here otherwise. We need this encouragement. So let that sink in. One of the first things God wanted these believers to grasp related to who Jesus was and what He'd accomplished was their need to get together regularly. See, I think we just absolutely overestimate our own spiritual strength, as it were. We absolutely underestimate the degree to which we need the help of brothers and sisters to stay in the race of life. God has not overestimated us. He's not underestimated us. He says this is what you need to do. You see this as a model, too, in the early church. Acts 2.46. Continuing with one mind in the temple, bread from house to house. They're eating meals together. They're taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. This was simply going on in the early church. That was the norm. We're meeting together like a big family. And we're encouraging each other. In Acts 20, verse 7, Paul was headed back on the last leg of his third missionary tour and he's headed back to Jerusalem and he stops in Troas and the text says on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread Paul began talking to them Paul knew everybody's gathered on the first day of the week and I'll get them when I get there the meeting will be going on I'm just traveling through but on the first day of the week on Sunday Lord's Day I'm going to be there I'll have my audience I'll give him my last shot he knows he'll never see them again this is my last shot and I know they will all be there on the first day of the week together that's when I'll share with them which he does If you look in 1 Corinthians, it's interesting that chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14 all have to do with the meetings of the church. There's four chapters out of 16 chapters that just say, when you get together, be aware of this, do this, don't do that. This is what it should look like. Four chapters out of 16 are simply what time together should look like. The New Testament assumes the family of God is meeting together regularly and apart from such times, the body is not built up, God's glory is minimized, And our faith flags. And for some of us, it may fail. So, to the need that we have for encouragement, that we need these family, these corporate times together with the family supper, sort of the paradigm, what uh, perhaps an image in our mind of what that might look like, but written large for the church. What happens when we get together? What does that encouragement look like? One thing is, 1 Corinthians 14.26 says this way, Let all things be done for edification. Let all things be done for edification. You might not be aware of it, this has been a guiding verse for this church. We had a discussion last Wednesday night in our home group just about things that had gone on in the church over the years. And this verse, 
when the family of God meets together, people should be encouraged. Edified means built up. It's like a house and you get up to the top of the roof. That's the thought. We're going to the top of the roof, top of the house, where we're encouraged when we get together. You know, guys, we've changed our services over the years because we've reflected and we've said we want people to be encouraged and we think we're missing the mark because we're hearing from people that they're saying, I'm not encouraged. Or this thing that we're trying to do, it discourages me. It's not coming off the way we want. So maybe like a mom saying you don't have to eat Brussels sprouts. We've changed and we've inserted broccoli, let's say. We've changed things as we've gone because we've heard from enough people, this isn't doing what we want. God wants us to come away as a norm from our family times together encouraged, edified, built up. That doesn't mean that there won't be times when we get together and there's conviction and there's a sense of I'm, I'm missing it, I'm blowing it. That's all healthy too. But the norm is that we're edified when the church meets together. There's encouragement to do good. And this is back to uh, Hebrews 10. Uh, as you see the day drawing near. You know, if you don't know where you're going, you're hampered in making a plan for your life. Where am I going? Well, the author knows the day drawing near. You know, for Christians in the early church, the day, the day of Christ. The day, that time in, in this world's history when things as they are are over. And God is ruling. His kingdom is brought in. He's ruling. And that day is arriving. So the author says, in light of that day that your life and mine will come to an end, that Christ will call one day, that we'll be united with Him, that that eternal kingdom will be instituted, in light of that, he says, encourage one another to love and good deeds. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2, we are God's workmanship, we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Love and good deeds. God has already prepared good works for you and I to walk in, to do. And when we get together, we should be encouraging each other. Are we doing the things God means us to do? You know, in our home group, again, we've had conversations and someone has shared about a conversation they had with someone else about the gospel, someone who didn't know Christ. And as they share that conversation, I realize again, I'm not being proactive. I'm not leaning forward in my conversations with others so that I'm ready to talk about Christ. But I'm called to that. I'm reminded of that because I'm interacting in this conversation which we've said we're important to each other. We're getting together for home group and someone tells me about their conversation with someone else and I realize I'm, I'm flagging. I'm falling down here. I need someone to encourage me and to remind me of that. Or related to parenting in groups like Growing Kids God's Way. The Schwensons are starting up again. You know, I might think I'm doing a pretty good job as a parent, but I'll hear another parent say something. I may be convicted. I think I'm missing it. I'm not getting it as well as I could. That's what's occurring. We're encouraged to love and good deeds as we're interacting with others intentionally as we set aside those times to do so. Guys, this is a huge one. This is huge. This is in Hebrews 3. The writer there says, and it's a similar theme uh, as chapter 10, take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That's the whole temptation. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So that we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is the thing. Hansen's disease, leprosy back in the day, you know, part of the danger of that was as the nerves in your, let's say, your hand deaden, you can't feel anything. You lose your ability to sense. Sin does that to us. 
sin deceives us. We think we're doing okay and we're not. Because sin by its very nature deceives us. And one of the great barriers to us giving way to sin in our life is hanging out with other Christians. It's the encouragement of the other saints in the body of Christ. So if we're at a big meeting like this, corporate worship and prayer and the Word, the Holy Spirit uses His Word to convict me of sin. Somebody's talking about something from God's Word, either in a text I haven't read or haven't thought of, or in a way I've never put together before, and the Holy Spirit uses that to show me, Mike, you've got sin in your life. It's deceptive by nature. You know, we say when we drive, check your blind spot. So I look in my mirror and I see no one there. And my peripheral vision, I'm okay. But if I turn my head, I can see, no, there's a car right next to me in that blind spot. Well, we have spiritual, moral blind spots. All of us do. That's just the way we're wired. Other people often will see things very clearly in our lives that we will never see on our own because we're deceived by our own sin. This is just how we're wired. We have sinful dispositions. Our minds are not fully renewed. And so we've got to be aware of that and careful that when we meet together, it's this great barrier, if you will. It's this great help for us not to be deceived by sin in some ongoing way. That's hugely important. The same thing can happen in small groups, too. We're walking in the spiritual light when we're hanging out with each other and we're being transparent. We're not hiding. This is who I really am. These are the things I really struggle with. This is what life's really like. We're walking in the light. First John talks about this. We'll have fellowship with each other. It's real fellowship. And God will show us those areas, those areas of deception. There's also this whole issue of renewing our mind. Uh, you know, uh, I think it's the Oregon Trail goes right through this part of the state. You know, there's parts on it. I can't remember what field I've been in. You can still see the wagon wheel ruts from all the folks that went through. And you know that happens one wagon after another. You start cutting ruts in the soil. The rain washes through them. And so the next wagon that comes, it's just going to follow those ruts. And you know, you and I tend to fall into ruts. For instance, I'll bet when you get on your laptop or your cell phone, I'll bet you tend to do the same things almost all the time. You check the news. See, I check the news. I check email if I have to. You know, but we've got patterns, right? We develop patterns. We default to patterns. Well, for us, because we've got sinful pasts and sinful images and thoughts from the past, our minds are not fully renewed. And when we get together, and especially when we have these conversations around God's Word, we are renewing our mind. We are cutting new paths in our mind. We're making new defaults. We'll never be done doing that. We always need that. Colossians 3.16 puts it this way, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. Teaching and admonishing each other. Admonish is a strong word. It's warn, exhort. We're getting in there with each other, perhaps in uncomfortable ways. I haven't quoted Joe Hellerman for a while, but he said this, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Long term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. I'm going to hurry through this last point, sorry, just for time's sake. You know God loves the supper meal, the supper time, the family meal, the family table. God loves that. And you see this built in all over the Bible. I'm not making this up. So you think of things like the Passover. God didn't have to institute a meal 
for people to remember what he did for them, did he? But he did. So you go to Exodus 12 or you go into other elements of the law written later. So God said, when you remember what I did for you, you're going to do so as a family, as a corporate body gathered together around a supper meal. And when you eat those bitter herbs and when you drink that wine, when you eat that lamb, you're going to remember what I did for you. You were slaves in Egypt and I came down with a mighty and a strong arm and I delivered you. That's who I am. That's what I do. And you're my people. That's the exodus. And the memorial to that is a meal. So right every year, about this time of year, every year the families of Israel are getting together around a supper table and they're remembering who God is and what He did for them. But if you go through the Old Testament thinking of the law and its provisions, first fruits and ingathering, if you're a male in Israel, you've got to be there. You're probably taking your family. You know, at the first uh, fruits festival, they're waving the first part of the harvest before God and they're thankful. God, you own everything. And we're thankful for what you're bringing in. At end gathering, 50 days later, they're thanking God for the harvest. Lord, you're the Lord of the harvest. Thanks so much. And when they do, and they're in Jerusalem, or they're there at the tabernacle, they're sharing these meals together. Or if they took peace or free will offerings to the tabernacle or the temple, the family takes part of that sacrificed animal home, and they have a feast. You see, all of this is in the context. We're feasting together in front of God remembering who He is and what He's done on our behalf. And we're giving thanks. All of these are meal-focused. The Lord's Supper, of course, no surprise that Jesus takes the Passover meal and He transforms that into what we call today the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, Communion. It's the same thing. right? So you go to 1 Corinthians 11 and the early church is doing what? They're having a meal together, a real meal. Just like we have potlucks. In the context of that meal, they have the Lord's Supper together. They remember. They take the bread and the wine. They remember Christ and what He's done. It's around a meal. They're all around the supper table together. I love this. That's when God is showing Himself and showing us what's important to Him. Home for supper applies to all those gatherings of the church. And by the way, some of you, if you're old school, especially old school Baptists, you may have grown up in a setting in which You said, if the church, I've heard this, if the church doors were open, my family was there. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I think that's the way that that worked. And some of you feel like that was a cross to bear. Now, I hope this is not a cross to bear, okay? And that's not what I'm talking about. When the church gathers, they should be encouraging. They should build us up. We should want to be there. If we don't want to be there, it's probably an indictment either on our own spiritual immaturity or lack or on the same things on the element of the church body we're gathering with. I hope that's never true of any of us or ever true of this church, okay? But this, this shouldn't be a pain to be born, the family meeting together. It should be a pleasure to enjoy. So Sunday services, potlucks, men's groups, women's groups, moms to moms, men's advances, women's retreats, etc. Those should be joyful times when the family is getting together We're affirming each other and we are specifically trying to encourage each other. Uh, When I worked an eight to five job Monday through Friday, I uh, favorite time of the week for me was Friday evening. So if I was driving home towards work, see the work day's over. Even if I've got reports to to produce, the work day is over. The work week is over. And as I head home, I know that we're all going to gather together at the supper table that evening. 
and we'll all be there. And the, the school week is over, right, too. So the work is done temporarily, and we're going to hang out, and Kathy's going to prepare a great meal, and we're going to hang out, and we're going to have a great time together. And for me, it was the high point of the week. Ah, oh, the work's over. And I get to go home, and I get to hang out with my family. And we'll catch up with each other, and we'll share those things that are important. It'll be a rich, it'll be a great, it'll be a meaningful time. That was the highlight of the week for me. And friends, let me close with this. There is a, there's a supper meal coming. There's a meal you don't want to miss. So when that day, Hebrews 10, when that day arrives and King Jesus is ruling over a new heaven and a new earth, and He sets up that banquet, you remember He told His disciples in Luke, I won't do this again until I do it with you in the kingdom of heaven. There's a meal coming. We're going to sit around a great table and all the children will be home and the work will be over. And the only thing you need to know to get there is you've got to be in God's family. And He has not made that hard. If you want to become a child of God and you're not, we simply say to Jesus, thank you for what you did on my behalf. That it was your body broken for me. It was your blood spilled out to cover my sins. See, we're not working hard to get in God's family. He's glad to welcome us in. He'll adopt us. You just say, that's me. And you'll be there. We'll be. This is real, by the way, guys. This isn't movie. This isn't make-believe. The day's coming, and we'll be there. And you'll say, wow, we're here. You know, sometimes we say how quickly time goes. It just seems like yesterday, you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago. There's going to be a moment, and we'll be sitting together in heaven. Jesus and the Father around the table. We'll be there. We'll be hanging out with each other. How did your life go? What do, you, what do you want to do in eternity? What will that look like? Which planet will you settle? Or what, what will that look like? I have no idea. But see, we'll be doing that around the supper table together with God our Father, the Spirit binding us, Jesus there. That day is coming. And our meetings together should be encouraging us towards that day. And they should be reminding us, we've got this short time. Hold on to the faith. Draw near. Absolutely. But see, gather together to encourage each other to love and good deeds, to hold on to the faith to go through to the end. It is my prayer that each of our families, and I mean as a nuclear family, really is enjoying rich family life, gathering together around those meal times, and really encouraging and blessing each other in those times, and also that we as the family of God are intentionally committing ourselves to honor the person and work of Jesus Christ by encouraging each other toward love and good deeds and a successful completion of the race. Successful completion. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe of Your goodness and Your mercy and Your grace and Your glory. Lord, thanks so much for sending Your Son Jesus to die for our sins, to take our place in the place of judgment, Lord, and to redeem us and make us Your children, such that, Lord, we have a future and a hope. Father, would You help us to mirror what is important to You in our times together? Would You give us tastes of heaven to come as we meet together intentionally to encourage each other to love and good deeds. Till that day, amen.